You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Morning to you. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Matt Lulloyan and serve as one of the pastors here of Liberty Church. It's always a, a privilege, uh, often a privilege of mine to be the one who gets to open up God's word and teach from it. So I get to do that this morning. And if you have Bibles, we're going to be in Luke's gospel, uh, chapter one. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles under those seats that Elise referenced a minute ago, page 855 uh, is where you'll find today's text. Uh, last week, we, we've been in this series now for a few weeks called Word Made Flesh, looking at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit. Uh, this week, it's the next phrase in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, it says in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So we're going to talk about that this morning. Some years back, uh, an author named Rob Bell, who at the time was a, a Christian pastor, I think now um, kind of Uh, would classify himself more as kind of a spiritual guru, uh, still an author. Uh, But Rob Bell, some years ago, speculated about the significance of the virgin birth. Was it really necessary that Jesus be born of a virgin? Would it change anything of substance, in other words, if this were not true? And he wrote this. If Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry... I think he was kind of going for like Mary and Larry. I think that was his idea there. And archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in. We would essentially not lose any any significant part of our faith. And he went on to say that's because our faith is actually more about how we live than about whether or not that's true. Now at the time, Uh, Rob Bell was not denying that Jesus was born of a virgin. I think if you were to fast forward to today, I would imagine that he does not agree with that anymore. But when he was writing in more of a Christian genre, uh, maybe some of you are familiar with his writings, it was kind of his thing to raise these really big questions and then not answer them. That was kind of his whole approach in his deck. He's, of course, not the only one to do that. And it's a little bit of a smart strategy. It's a way you can kind of sound edgy, but then when someone like starts to say like, that actually sounds like heresy. That sounds like you're teaching false things. You have this escape hatch that can go like, I'm just asking. Uh, I'm just asking. I didn't say that. I just am asking. Now, I'm sure that Rob Bell wrote that because Jesus's virgin birth is an obstacle to many people to, to faith. It's an obstacle to faith for many people. Uh, human beings aren't born from virgins. That's not a thing that happens. So assuming the best motive, people who propose ideas like this, they're trying to invite people into the Christian faith without needing to believe in the virgin birth. They're trying to welcome people in and do away with this obstacle. Maybe that's where you find yourself this morning, wondering if if this really is that important, if anything significant really is lost, if Larry or Joseph or some other man is Jesus's father and that he's not virgin born. I would invite you to consider that this is that significant. This is that significant. Because in in contrast to what Rob Bell proposed, our faith is not more about how we live. It's about how Jesus lived. It's about how Jesus was able to accomplish what no naturally conceived man ever could. And as we look at this account from Luke, and as we consider the virgin birth this morning, 
I hope you'll see not only that this is necessary, but that it's emboldening. It's emboldening. As the virgin birth provides for our salvation, it also is an invitation. It invites our participation with God in his great acts in the world. So let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in to Luke chapter one. Let me pray. Eternal God, in the Psalms of David, in the words of the prophets, in the dream of Joseph, and in so many other texts of scripture, your promise is spoken. And it takes flesh at last in the womb of the virgin. So may Emmanuel, who's God with us, may Emmanuel find welcome in our hearts and be for all peoples the advent of redemption and grace. We ask this through him whose coming is certain, whose day draws near, your son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, and I'll begin in verse 26. In the sixth month, that is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that's Mary's cousin. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. To start off this morning, uh, let me just ruin a particular Christmas song that some of you might enjoy. It's always your favorite way of starting off a sermon. I'm sure during this holiday season, some of you have Christmas playlists and you've heard different vocalists belting out the words, Mary, did you know? Mary, did you know? Well, when you read Luke 1, you find out, yes. (laughs) Yes, she did. You can imagine Mary saying, yep, Gabriel told me. In fact, if you keep reading a few verses further, Luke wrote it down, I wrote a song about it. Maybe before you wrote your song, you should have listened to mine. Okay, so now that that song's ruined and that you'll just never be able to listen to that quite the same way again, two things, two things for us to walk our way through with the rest of our time this morning. Answers and active participation. So answers, what does the Bible say about the virgin birth? And active participation, what does the virgin birth say about our involvement in God's work? Answers, active participation. So first, answers. As I hope we've been seeing in this Advent series, in order to save us, in order to rescue us from our sin, Jesus needed to be fully human and fully God. I find it really helpful to keep that phrase at the front of my mind. Only man should, only God 
could. In other words, in order to represent human beings, Jesus needed to be fully human. But in order to redeem human beings, Jesus needed to be fully divine, fully God. Here's the part we have not talked about as much over these past few weeks. Jesus must be one person, one person. So two natures, fully God and fully man, but one person. The the fancy term for this that keeps pastors and theologians in business is the hypostatic union, the hypostatic union. And it ranks among some of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. It's right up there alongside the Trinity. Uh, It's right up there alongside how God can be completely sovereign, completely in control of all things, and human beings can be completely responsible for their own actions. Scripture often tells us very little about the how of these mysteries. Often scripture is content to simply affirm these things as true and not give much answer to the how. But with the hypostatic union, we're actually being given some of the how. Apostles like Paul are going to go on to spill a ton of ink in their letters, saying that though some things do remain mysterious for us as Christians, a massive amount of God's mystery has now been revealed in Jesus. Things that were once hidden, things that were once unknown, are now made known. And that revelation through Jesus begins before he is even born. The virgin birth, maybe you've never thought about it this way, the virgin birth is God pulling back the curtain and beginning to show us how he will accomplish our salvation, how he will make it possible for one person to be both God and man. See, we often view the virgin birth as a question, but first and foremost, the virgin birth is an answer. It's an answer. Before you ask, how is a virgin birth possible? We need to take a step back and ask, how is salvation possible? How is salvation possible? How can God be love? How can God be fully loving and a judge? How can God be just and justifier? How can he put an end to sin without putting an end to sinners? The virgin birth is how. It's how. It's how the eternal, holy, second person of the Trinity, God the Son, could maintain his full divinity and at the very same time become fully human and enter into and identify with sinful humanity. That Mary is a virgin underscores the full divinity of Jesus. This son will not be conceived, as we heard in Luke chapter one from Gabriel, this son will not be conceived naturally. He will not simply be a human being that God gives like a special dose of his grace, a special blessing to. He will be, Verse 32, the son of the most high. He will be, verse 35, holy, the son of God. But that Mary is a real woman with a real female reproductive system who will go through the real process of growing a baby in her body and then pushing that baby out of her body means that the son of God will be fully human. So we almost always refer to this as the virgin birth. But more accurately, we would call this a virginal conception. Virginal conception. The miracle is not the birth as much as it is the conception. Jesus' conception is unique even from other kinds of miraculous conceptions. So Elizabeth, for example, Mary's cousin who we read about in this text, she also experienced a miraculous conception. She was unable for her whole life to have children. 
But then like Sarah, Abraham's wife, centuries earlier, though advanced in years, God opened her womb. She conceived miraculously, but she still conceived via the normal human means of conception. Zechariah was still the father. She still conceived by means of sexual intercourse. Jesus's conception was uniquely miraculous. It was a virginal conception, a direct act of the Holy Spirit. Mary's pregnancy, Mary's labor, and Jesus's birth, on the other hand, were natural. They were natural. Like any other child, Jesus grew in Mary's uterus. Like any other child, he passed through Mary's birth canal. Like any other laboring mother, Mary's labor was marked by pain. That, after all, was the consequence of the curse of sin. That was the consequence of humanity's rebellion against God in the garden so many years earlier. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus would be born without a sin nature. But born to Mary, born through Mary, he was born into the curse of sin we suffer. Because in order to rescue us from it, he had to be. He had to be. See, right after God had pronounced that curse against sin in the garden, he made a promise. And in that promise, he said that one day an offspring, a flesh and blood son, child, a naturally born child of a woman would come and would crush the head of the serpent. So Jesus is that offspring. He's that offspring. All of this to say, you have freedom you have license to scrutinize the virgin birth. And if you've never done that before, I hope you really will. The centuries are filled with examples of biological and philosophical and theological and mythological objections to the virgin birth. But scrutinizing it from all those different lenses and even a few others, the most plausible explanation remains that what scripture affirms is what actually happened. If this sounds impossible, it's because it is. If you wonder how this is possible, so did Mary. That's why she said, verse 34, how will this be since I'm a virgin? That's why Joseph was planning to divorce her, to break off their betrothal, their engagement. I know this was a long time ago, but people still knew where babies came from 2,000 years ago. right? Let's not be chronological snobs like C.S. Lewis once referred to it. Like People still knew where babies came from. Virgin births were not a thing 2,000 years ago. When Gabriel told Mary she would conceive and bear a son, though she had never been sexually intimate with anyone, she wasn't like, well, yeah, that makes sense. I think Elizabeth's having one of those virgin births too right now. So scrutinize this all you want. Just remember, friends, that more than a question to be scrutinized, the virgin birth is an answer to be savored. It's an answer to be savored. It is God pulling back the curtain. It is a gift of God's revelation. The virgin birth reveals far more mystery than it creates. How can a holy God ransom sinful people? How can God bear his own curse against sin? How can a fully human man also be fully God and thereby save his people from their sin? This is how. This is how. For nothing will be impossible with God. If that's what scripture says about the virgin birth, then second, let's consider what the virgin birth says about our involvement in God's work. In other words, let's talk about active participation. Last week, we looked more at things from Joseph's vantage point, how in the the conception and in the birth of Jesus, his role was to contribute nothing. 
like the Israelites on the shore of the Red Sea centuries before, Joseph was simply to be silent and look and see the salvation that God would work for him. But as we look at things from Mary's vantage point here in Luke 1, we get this amazing insight into what God invites his people into, how we actually get to become active participants in God's work. In other words, Joseph is a picture of what God does for us, what only he can do. But Mary is a picture of what God does through us or even with us. It's still very clearly God's initiative, God's work, but Mary is a willing participant. She's a servant, as she calls herself there in verse 38. Not a passive observer like Joseph. She actively carries Jesus in her body, feeling all of the pains and the discomforts of labor, pregnancy, eating and drinking and resting day by day so that her body might actually sustain the life of the Son of God. Think about this even from a biological perspective. Some of Mary is in Jesus. Her DNA, her flesh and blood, God the Spirit supernaturally fertilized her human egg. It was not some kind of divine in vitro. Uh, Mary is not a surrogate mother to Jesus. Mary is Jesus' actual mother. Gabriel says, you, Mary, will conceive in your womb. Unlike Joseph, who contributed nothing, Mary made an essential contribution to the humanity of Jesus. Now, is that not amazing? Is that not amazing? In order to bring about what would be his greatest act of redemption, the eternal almighty God invited that kind of participation from a human being. Mary, of course, is unique in this. No other human being has ever participated with God in, in this way which means perhaps in a way that will make some of us uncomfortable, we should esteem Mary more highly than many Protestant Christians do. Now, I'm not suggesting that we begin to worship Mary or that we venerate Mary because of the uniqueness of her contribution. There's some lines of tradition in the early church that began to teach that she herself was conceived supernaturally, that her mother conceived her supernaturally, that she was without sin, but when we actually engage with what scripture says about this, we don't see that anywhere. It's not suggested anywhere. In fact, the opposite is suggested. In her song, which we sang a version of even this morning, a few verses later, she calls God my savior, which implies, of course, that she needs one, that she needs a savior. If she was without sin, she wouldn't need a savior. Some tradition also teaches what's called the perpetual virginity of Jesus, or sorry, of Mary of Mary, uh, that not only was Jesus conceived apart from sexual intercourse, but that Mary then remained a virgin for her entire life. Not only uh, would that have been a huge bummer for Mary and Joseph, but it would also make Jesus's brothers and sisters difficult to explain. They had to come from somewhere. Even more, here's what I think stands out even more, it would directly contradict Matthew's gospel. As we read last week in Matthew chapter 1, as Joseph has that dream and an angelic messenger says to him, take Mary as your wife. He goes, and when he wakes up, he goes and does that. And then it says in Matthew 1, Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Until, meaning the most natural, easy reading of this scripture, once she had given birth to Jesus, Mary and Joseph then began a normative, 
God-glorifying sexual relationship between a husband and wife. And that's where the brothers and sisters came from. If Matthew just said, and Joseph knew her not, period, I think there'd be a case maybe for for Mary's perpetual virginity. But Matthew said, until, until. Here's the point. Some, like the Roman Catholic Church in Eastern Orthodox churches, some esteem Mary too highly, too highly. And for the sake of trying to uphold certain lines of tradition, they do some real gymnastics interpretively with some of the other passages in scripture, trying to build a case for why Mary should be esteemed that way. But others, and maybe this is more where some of us in this room would fall, others esteem Mary too lowly. We aren't amazed enough by the fact that she contributed this much to God's saving work. Here's what I would argue. Mary does not need to be a perpetual version to be esteemed highly. She doesn't need to be sinless to be esteemed highly. In fact, because Mary was a sinner like us, because Mary needed her own savior like you and I do, it's that much more encouraging. Look what God is able and willing to do through and with sinners like you and me. As we said, you and I are not Mary. Her contribution is a unique, one-time thing. But think about some of the significant ways you and I are invited to actively participate with God. We can actively participate in prayer. In prayer. James, Jesus' brother, writes that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. That we pray and God hears and God responds to our prayer. James goes on to write there that the prophet Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. And he prayed and then it didn't rain for three and a half years. And he prayed again and then it started to rain. We actively participate with God in other people's salvation. Other people's salvation. Of course, the Holy Spirit must do work inside people's hearts that we cannot, but Paul calls himself and others fellow workers with God. 1 Corinthians 3. He calls us ambassadors or ministers of reconciliation. We're the human means of reconciliation between God and people. We bring that message. We are ministers of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5. He says that it's possible for us to fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Not that anything objective is lacking, but by our physical presence with people, we fill up something that Jesus can't do in that moment. That's Colossians 1. He says to Timothy that by paying attention to his life and teaching, he will save both himself and those who hear him. 1 Timothy 4. James, back to James, he writes that if someone wanders from the truth and you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ help bring that person back, you save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And we can actively participate not only in other people's salvation, but in aspects of our own. Sanctification specifically, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus. Paul writes in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's writing that God must work this in us, but then participating with God, we are those who work it out. Are those not crazy statements? Are they not crazy statements? And the craziest one, at least in my opinion, comes from the mouth of Jesus himself in John chapter 14, where Jesus says to his followers, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, whoever, will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Greater works than Jesus. Why? How? Because when Jesus goes to the Father, they will send the Holy Spirit. 
That is the same spirit who involved the flesh and blood contribution of Mary to bring about the conception of Jesus. That spirit, friends, that Holy Spirit dwells in you by faith, within your flesh and blood. The Holy Spirit acts in and through and with you. The Holy Spirit involves and includes your active participation and thereby will do things, Jesus said, are greater than the things even he did during his years of ministry on the earth. Church, this should utterly obliterate our apathy and our passivity and our resignation. It should just utterly obliterate that. We sometimes stare face to face with the brokenness. We look at the brokenness of the world and we're just overwhelmed. And we think, what can we possibly do? What can we possibly do? And that's true. There are moments when we just have to throw up our hands and say, I have no ability to do anything in this moment. God, you must act. But there are other moments, there are other moments, friends, when we look at the brokenness of the world and we're tempted to resignation and despair and saying like, man, what can I do about this? A lot. Because the spirit of God dwells in you. Because the spirit of God dwells in you. This calls us into a life of unparalleled significance. This calls us into a life devoted to things that really matter. How sad it is that we settle for yet another hobby. That we settle for making as much money as we possibly can as the aim of our life. Or we settle for endless leisure and entertainment. And Jesus says to his followers, greater things will you do. And we're like, yeah, that's great, Jesus. But man, the, you've seen the previews for these new Netflix series? They're pretty good. I think I might try to catch up on those instead. It's a tragedy when people who are not Christians settle for less than all that has been accomplished, all they've been invited to through the work of Christ. C.S. Lewis has this famous quote about mud pies, you know, that, that we're often content to settle for making mud pies in a slum when we have been offered freely in Jesus a holiday at sea. But it is as much of a tragedy when God's people, when Holy Spirit indwelt people do our own form of settling. So I want to ask you this morning, where have you settled for being a respectable Christian instead of an active participant with God? Where have you settled for being a respectable Christian instead of an active participant with God? You know what I mean when I say respectable Christian? You've read all the right stuff. You know the lingo. You've got enough boxes checked. You know, you, you know, sufficient church attendance, sufficient time in your spiritual disciplines. Your life is not in some kind of debilitating crisis right now. But nor is it characterized by the greater acts that Jesus promised. Nor is it evidencing that you are a steward of the presence of God. That the spirit who brought about Jesus' conception in Mary now dwells in you. Like if, you if you know me at all, and many of you do, you know that I'm all in on what I said last week, what I preached last week, that salvation is God's work, that he must do what we cannot. And when we look at Joseph and the Holy Spirit's conception, we should be humbled and we should be silenced. We should be made desperate in our dependence for God to do that work. But as we see how God involves Mary's active participation, we need to be stirred up to our own. We need to be stirred up to our own. You are invited to be willing servants working with God in his great works. From everyday miracles, if we can even 
call them every day. It seems too small to refer them to them as that. But everyday miracles like people becoming Christians, like people being transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus, to things like global movements of church planting and ministries of mercy and cultural renewal. God is pushing back what is dark in the world. What sin and Satan and death have corrupted and sought to destroy. And just as he brought the light of the world, his only son, Jesus, through the active participation of Mary, he will continue to bring his light through the active participation of his people. So be humbled by Joseph's inability to contribute, but be encouraged, be emboldened by Mary's active participation. Let it deal the death blow to your apathy and to your passivity. God works through us and with us, even to this extent, even to that extent. I want to close this morning with a quote, and then because why not, a nod a spoken word nod to the musical Hamilton. So here's the quote. Here's the quote. In a letter to John Adams, Thomas Jefferson once wrote, the day will come when the mystical conception of Jesus by the supreme being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with the fable of the conception of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. In other words, Jefferson said, writing to John Adams, someday people will see the virgin birth as just another myth. Well, Thomas, that was a real nice declaration. But I'm afraid that you were tragically mistaken. Apart from virgin birth, there is no salvation. But with it, God has blessed our participation. With it, he redeems our abdication. With it, he undermines our resignation. Thomas, I'm afraid your gospel is damnation. The church forever stands upon Jesus' incarnation. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Strengthen us now, O God, in the power of your Holy Spirit. Make us marvel that your spirit has been given to us, your spirit who brought about Jesus' conception in the body of Mary. Stir us up to active participation in your great acts of redemption in this world. Forgive our passivity. Put our passivity to death as we see what you were willing and able to do through Mary. Her contribution was unique, but you have invited us to no less. Greater works will we do because the spirit dwells within us. This Advent, we come again this morning to your table, rejoicing in the work that you have accomplished, longing for the consummation of it, the fullness of your kingdom to come. In the meantime, open our eyes to see what you have invited us into. It is so much more than we often give you credit for. Save us in the way only you can, but then use us, make us participants with you in your great work. I pray all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.